Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Psalm 36, the whole psalm, Psalm 36, verses 1 through 12, which is actually our read scripture psalm for the day that we are to be praying through. We found on page 871 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for the ways that you are opening our eyes, that you are uh, not only opening physical eyes, but spiritual eyes, that we can see who you are more clearly, that we can see what you're doing in this world and in our lives and in the lives of those around us. God, we pray this morning that more than just being those who see it differently, that we be those who live differently. God, that you would truly make us alive in you. That you would truly make us into the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 36, for the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountain, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. Turning then to John chapter 6, New Testament lesson for today, John 6, verses 25 through 40. Shortly after Jesus has fed the 5,000 just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, he walks across the lake to the other side. I'll skip over that for now. But starting in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, 
Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And we will wait until next week to see how they respond to that. In the meantime, we are looking this morning at Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43, which you can find on page 1706 in your pew Bibles. And because we are right here in the middle of Acts, I thought it might be a good idea to back up and explain what in the world is going on in this particular book and this particular section. Because it is in the middle of a story, and if you've ever, if you've ever come into a movie and somebody's already watching the movie, and you sit down right next to them, and they say, oh, you should watch this, this is great. And so you sit down and you start watching, and you're like, who is that? Why is she so mad? <laughs> and you start asking the questions, and they're like, oh, just stop it. And you're like, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. So we're going to back up just a little bit so you understand what's going on in the story of Acts so far. And what is going on is we have Jesus. Jesus, who had uh, been born in Bethlehem, who had lived and taught and performed miracles, which, as we just saw again, John constantly refers to as signs, as those things that are pointing to something else. It's not just the miracle itself, but it's what it's pointing to about who Jesus is and what he's about. He does all these signs. He also uh, teaches a lot. And then he is killed on a cross, dies three days later, raised to life again. Then spends 40 days going around, talking with his disciples, um, eating with them, walking with them, teaching, breaking bread, cooking them breakfast. And after these 40 days are over, he then um, says, you wait, wait right here in Jerusalem until the Father gives what is promised. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And so uh, that's what happens. He then is taken up into heaven and the disciples stay in Jerusalem. And then the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, and we see everything changing in the life of these particular individuals and in the whole world. As the Spirit of God now empowers the disciples to do exactly what Jesus said they would do, which is to be witnesses of who Jesus is and what he did and how he, uh, has, how he is the Messiah, the king that God had promised, but a very different king than what people were expecting. And so the message then goes out, and lives are changed. And we see people become more fully alive than they'd ever been before. 
And we see people respond by wanting to do anything to stop this. And so we start seeing people who are actually being killed, just like Jesus was, by those who are in power and don't like this um, upsetting their system. They don't like the message, just like Herod didn't like the message of a new king when uh, Jesus was born. There are the people who are in power in these days, early days of Acts, who didn't like this message of a new king either and try to do anything they can to stamp it out. And yet, what we see is exactly what Jesus said It's continue to happen. Those who have received the Spirit of God continue to go out and proclaim, empower, this is, Jesus is the king, and his kingdom has come, and it's still coming. And so uh, this message goes out, lives are continuing to change, and we see that those two things constantly happening. The message going out, lives being changed, and also opposition always just right there with it. And those two things kind of keep going on. And so where we are right now is we saw a man by the name of Saul who had been a major part of that opposition, trying to crush this message. And he met Jesus. I was going to say a few weeks ago. That's when we read about it. It actually happened a long time ago. He met Jesus on the road to go persecute more Christians. And his life was completely changed. And he ends up, um, I want to say kind of switching teams, but it's so much more than that. We see that today where people put on a different jersey and now they're part of a different team and whatever, but they're still the same person. He was not the same person. <laughs> he was blind. Now he could see. He was dead. He was made alive. And, um, and so we see in the past few weeks how God has been working in his life in particular, saying, if God can forgive me of what I did, he can forgive anybody. And if he can do the things that he's doing with me, he can do it with you. And so we see... Um, we saw that. We also saw how now he has become, he went from being the hunter of Christians to becoming the hunted Christians, even by those who he'd formerly associated with. But how he'd come together with the disciples who were still in Jerusalem. That's where we left off last week, but the story continues. And what's really strange is it seems like when Luke is writing this uh, book of Acts, that he's getting ready to tell us, okay, so now here's what happens in the life of Saul going forward. And today, it just sort of drops off. And you don't see Saul again for a while. But he has introduced Saul, and we will get back to him. But now, he shifts back to those apostles that, uh, that Saul met with in Jerusalem, Peter in particular. And we're going to see how God is using not only Saul to do amazing things, but how he's using Peter. Peter the disciple who was so um, close with Jesus for three years and still got everything wrong. <laughs> and so this is, we look at Saul a couple weeks ago, and Saul was saying, you know, if I could be this horrible, if I could be this much of an enemy of God, and he could forgive me, he could forgive anybody. With Peter, it's more <laughs> like... If somebody could be that confused <laughs> and missing the point at every turn this much and God could still use him, oh, there's hope for us yet. <laughs> and here's where we really see, we saw Peter was the one who, when the Holy Spirit came on the church at Pentecost, he is the one who then stands up and preaches. This is after he had been the one who denied Jesus the night of his crucifixion. I don't even know the guy. 
And the Holy Spirit comes in his life, and he stands up, and he says, let me tell you about this guy. And everything has changed. And now we see Peter, who has been still in Jerusalem, going off to a different location. So we're looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is not a story about Aeneas. This is not a story about uh, Tabitha or Dorcas. And it's not even really a story about Peter. This is a story about the Holy Spirit continuing to work in the lives of all these people and through them. And so you see, I hope you see this, that at the end of each of these sections, Peter goes off to one place. He's just going there to check on all the Christians who are in these other places. He's seen what's going on in Jerusalem, seen a little bit in Samaria, uh, but he is seeing now what's going on in other places, these Christians. And he heals Aeneas, and then what happens in that area? All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Okay? Keep that in mind. Then he goes on to the next place. Raises someone from the dead. I'm not going to just gloss over that. That's a big deal. But what happens at the end of that? Verse 42. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. All right, this is the story that Luke is telling. So we're going to look a little more closely at these other things, but I want us to just keep this in mind and in context that he's not saying just a story about, let's just tell a story about Tabitha. It's also something interesting that happened. But this is the spreading of the good news and the power of the Holy Spirit and how this message is going out into all these surrounding areas, just as Jesus said it would, and how people are continuing to come to the Lord because of these things that what they are seeing here is actually signs of the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. This is what we're seeing, is the kingdom breaking into this world. And so we're seeing signs of that as Peter goes, and we're seeing people receive that joyfully and uh, turn to the Lord. Um, Okay, we're going to look at this, though, with this 
It's one word in Greek. It's two in English. Just this phrase, get up. Did you notice that coming through here? Get up. It comes through a couple times. It actually comes through um, in the next several several weeks of what we're going to be looking at. We see this phrase again and again. And it's actually one that we just saw in John that Jesus said. Twice. And he will continue to say it throughout this. So we're going to read these side by side as we go the next couple weeks. Um, he says, This is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. And then again, uh, they shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. This raise them up, that's the same Greek word that is behind what Peter is saying here. This get up. <laughs> Now, here's what's weird about this. This word can mean just stand up, get on your feet. It can also mean uh, like to wake somebody up, and it also means to actually raise someone from the dead. How weird is it that a word like that even exists? (laughs) That can mean all of those things. But then you look at how it's used, and it is the perfect word to be used here. This get up. Think about who Peter is and what it is that he is talking about. He's talking about Jesus who was raised from the dead. And he says, now you can have this kind of new life in Jesus. And so, of course, he's going to use a word that means to be raised from the dead. But the first time we see him using it here, he's talking to a guy who's already alive. He's not needing to raise him from the dead, right? He's just been in bed for eight years. Eight years of being in bed. Can you even imagine what that would feel like after just, you know, the first three years. It's plenty. Eight years of laying there. I wonder about things like this. We, are, we don't ever know. But I got to thinking, uh, thinking about Aeneas. He's been in this bed for eight years. When Peter comes to him, it has not yet been eight years, as far as we can tell, not been eight years since Jesus started preaching and teaching and healing. Which means, the, and it's not that far away from where Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing, which means the whole time Jesus is in that area, Aeneas is in bed, wondering where God is, wondering if his life is going to be like this forever. And It sure looks like it is. Why didn't something happen sooner? I don't know. And we usually don't know. But what we do see is that even after eight years, it's not too late for Aeneas, and it's not too late for the people around him who then get to see something amazing happen. As Peter comes in and he says to someone, who for the last eight years, trust me, if he could have gotten up, he would have. And Peter looks at him and he says, get up. Get up. But he doesn't just say get up. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. This is not a normal doctor visit. This is not... Aeneas being taken to a physician who says, all right, what we need to do here is we need to, you know, (laughs) 
work on your knee, maybe a little physical therapy, whatever. This is completely different. This is a body that has not been able to walk for eight years being restored to health and to wholeness like that. Who gets up now, not under his own power, but in the power of the Spirit. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Okay. Okay, fine. But that's a guy who couldn't walk. But what is Jesus going to do about Tabitha? This lady who, I mean, she can't walk for a very different reason. She's actually died. And Peter, of course, is in a nearby town, and so the people there, she dies, they're like, hey, Peter's nearby. Go get him. Now, it seems like they are expecting Peter to come and raise her from the dead. Maybe. It doesn't say that explicitly. But I don't know what else they're doing. They're just calling him over to do the funeral. I don't know. But Peter comes in. He actually comes by. And everybody is gathered around her. And they are, oh, let me show you what all she's done. She's telling all the stories. And Peter sends them out of the room. As though what they are doing is not appropriate for what's getting ready to happen. And then he kneels down and he prays. And don't you wish that Luke had recorded for us what exactly he prayed? It doesn't tell us. It just says he knelt down and he prayed. And then he turns towards the dead woman and says, Tabitha, get up. There we have those words again. Get up. Stand up. Rise from the dead. I don't know if you've ever tried that. But this is not normally what happens. Normally when someone is dead, they don't just get up. And yet, this is why I'm kind of glad that Luke doesn't record the prayer that Peter prays here because I'm afraid that the way we would take that is as some sort of magic formula that if we just say these same things that Peter said, then the same thing will happen. And that's why I also think it's really important that with stories like this, we keep in mind the whole story and where it takes place and what's going on at this particular time and place as this message is breaking through into a new area. And every time throughout the book of Acts, and even today, when you see the gospel breaking into a new area, things like this happen. And you see people who have been sick for a long time get well. And you see people who, have, who are dead, who rise from the dead. And so I don't know what Peter prayed. I would, I'm curious. But I also think it's instructive because while we might not see the results he sees, I think we can still follow his example. That when anyone dies, we can follow the example of kneeling and praying. That is still appropriate. Um, always. That is what he does. But then, with whatever whatever it is he hears from God in this moment, or whatever is going on, he then says to her, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes, seeing Peter. She sat up, and he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. 
That line there, especially the widows, strikes me as odd. Is it you? Why especially the widows? It, it seems on the one hand like it would be a little hard for them. I mean, these are the people that she had been caring for. These are the people that she was close to. But these are also people who are widows. Like they are identified because they were married to someone who has died. But their husbands weren't raised. Tabitha was. So isn't that a little, a little hard? Or is it exactly what they need? In the same way that for us, you know, Paul says when Jesus is raised from the dead, he is raised as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That he is the one who is raised first, but we will all be raised. And so I think the same for these widows, that when they see Tabitha raised, not only is this someone that they care about, not only is this, again, prioritizing people who in the culture were not prioritized, but it's also giving hope to those who need hope. Of the resurrection that is to come, of everyone in Jesus being able to get up again. Now, I talked about this in the children's sermon. You probably see this is where this is going already. And that is, as we see this happening, there is a sense in which, I mean, this, yes, this happened. Physically, she was raised from the dead. But that there's also things going on here that are instructive to us spiritually, in the same way that Paul was blind physically and then could see, because spiritually, it was showing that he was blind and then could see the same thing with being uh, lame and then able to walk again or being dead and then made alive. Um, I think a lot of people have said this, but I think it's Ravi Zacharias that I've heard it from, and that is uh, that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. He didn't come to make bad people good. He made. He came to make dead people alive. And this is what we see in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. You know, Paul had said, Paul had said in 1 Corinthians, he lists off all these things the wicked people do. And he he says, these people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and that's what some of you were. But now, that's not who you are. And it's really easy, I think, for people looking from the outside to look at a list of, these are bad deeds that we were doing, now we're doing good things, so it must be you do good things, and that's how you make God happy. That's how you earn your way into his presence. And that is not what the gospel is saying. So in, uh, in Ephesians, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
we can see, we should see, a difference in our lives, the way that we used to live and the way we live now. But we should never, ever, ever have that like the, uh, the Pharisee that Jesus tells about in his parable who goes to the temple and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. But instead, we look at it and we say, on my own, all I could do is what I used to do. And there was nothing I could do to break that pattern. There was nothing I could do to live in the life that God has called me to live. But God has made me alive in him. And now I can live in a completely different way. And so we look at the changes in our lives and we marvel at what God is doing in us. And then we keep doing those things that he's calling us to do. We are on the edge here of the, um, the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And of course, that's where we have Martin Luther, who's so big on we are not saved by any works. You can't add anything to what Jesus has already done. And so we have this sort of instinctive, natural uh, rebellion against, as Protestants especially, we can't do anything. Don't, don't tell me what to do, because doing anything, that sounds a lot like legalism, that sounds a lot like works righteousness. And so, no, we're just going to trust in Jesus to do it all, so we're not going to do anything. But it's not it either. And so I want you to notice that when Peter heals, or actually when Peter lets Aeneas know that Jesus has healed him, what's the first thing that he tells him after he says he's been healed? He gives him a command to follow. Get up. Roll up your mat. There are things to do. It would be inappropriate having been healed for him to still lay there. When he prays to Tabitha, then he looks at her and he says, Tabitha, get up. Having been raised from the dead, it would be inappropriate for her to lay there. And this calls back to when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It would be a really weird story if when Jesus stands there at the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. If Lazarus suddenly is restored to life in the tomb, still wrapped in all the grave clothes, and he's like, oh, neat. But if Jesus can raise me from the dead, I'm sure he can also bring me out. I'll just hang out and wait for him. That's not how the story goes. It is Lazarus come out. And he does. And so, yes, Jesus does the work, but he also is doing the work and calling us into a life with him. Let me... Just looked at my clock. Apologize. I hope you pre-ordered your brisket lunches. Okay. <clears throat> we are so close to at the end of N.T. Wright's book, Simply Christian, he says, when you see the dawn breaking, you think back to the darkness in a new way. Sin is not simply the breaking of a law. It is the missing of an opportunity. And then a little bit later, he concludes the book by saying, Christian holiness is not, as people often imagine, a matter of denying something good. It is about growing up and grasping something even better. Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. This is what we're seeing. New creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. 
Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of the present world. It is time in the power of the Spirit to take up our proper role, our fully human role, as agents, heralds, and stewards of the new day that is dawning. That, quite simply, is what it means to be Christian, to follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. There will be commands that we are to follow, but we are not to follow them for the sake of keeping all the rules. We are to follow them because we are being led into a new way of life, a life with our Creator through Jesus. And when we look at the New Testament, there are lists of rules, but it's not about just finding all the lists of rules and keeping those. It's about learning to recognize the voice of our shepherd because sometimes he will call you to do something and sometimes he will tell you to stop doing something <laughs> and sometimes there are times where he will tell you to get up and go do this thing and other times he will tell you to sit down and rest. Our problem is even as those who have been raised to new life we tend to want to sit when we're supposed to get up <laughs> and to run forward and charge ahead when we're supposed to sit down and wait. So in this, we see that there's a new life calling us to get up. <laughs> and we need to learn to follow the voice of our shepherd. One final quote. This comes from George MacDonald, if it'll open wrong thing. There we go. George MacDonald, talking about this idea, says, someone might say, but I do not know how to awake and arise. I will tell you. Get up and do something the master tells you. And so make yourself his disciple at once. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have done, whether you have this day done one thing because he said, do it or once abstained because he said, do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not anything he tells you. If you can think of nothing he, ha he ever said as having had an atom of influence on your doing or not doing, you have too good ground to consider yourself no disciple of his. But you can begin at once to be a disciple of the living one by obeying him in the first thing you can think of in which you are not obeying him. We must learn to obey him in everything, and so must begin somewhere. Let it be at once, and in the very next thing that lies at the door of our conscience. O fools and slow of heart, if you think of nothing but Christ and do not set yourselves to do his words, you but build your houses on the sand. We are called by the one who can make us alive to get up and to follow him into this new creation his kingdom of God as people who are citizens of that kingdom and children of the king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for stirring in our spirits even a desire to follow you. Now we know that we don't have the means to even create
create that desire. So, Lord, we thank you for putting that in us. And, God, we thank you for uh, calling us to get up with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives. And the kingdom that he proclaimed is something we can be a part of even now as we learn to live with you and follow you. I pray that you would help us to trust you in everything, to pray to you in all situations. And Lord, we pray now together in the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now let us stand and affirm what we believe using the words of the Apostles' Creed.